0: Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter 2. So the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 2, I think that's page 332 in your pew Bibles. 332, last week we began an Advent series looking at uh, the women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. That's in uh, the book of, of Matthew, chapter 1. And we said that the genealogy of Christ is is really sort of like his resume. It's his resume for being the Messiah of Israel, for being the Savior of the world, really. And that's what uh, we're concentrating on. There are four women in particular that are mentioned there besides uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're going back and looking at their stories as they come to us in the Old Testament. So just let me read those first few verses from Matthew 1. This is a record of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob and jacob the father of judah and his brothers nothing too surprising there yet then judah the father of perez and Zerah, um, whose mother was tamar and that's what we talked about last week um, perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse and on it goes. And then let's turn over to Joshua chapter 2 and let's get the story of Rahab as it comes to us firsthand. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. The men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on your own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head. If a hand is laid on him, but if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back and went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua son of Nun and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, sometimes you take your car to get an oil change or some kind of service done, and a mechanic comes out when you're there to pick it up, and he or she looks at you and says, Well, I've got good news and bad news. The oil change went fine, but it turns out you're going to need a new set of tires. Your tires are shot. And these are the tires that you just bought six months ago. While you're trying to absorb the bad news, he or she explains to you about wheel alignments. He says, you know, you have to get your wheels aligned from time to time because over time, sometimes slowly, sometimes not so slowly, you you, you drive over potholes and such and, and gradually y- your one wheel might begin to turn just a little bit to the right and your other wheel might begin to turn just a little bit to the left and you're really your car is trying to go in two different directions at the same time and your tires absorb the worst of it. You have to get your wheels aligned once in a while, she says. Now that can happen to your car tires, but that can also happen to your life that you can fall out of alignment or be out of alignment, doesn't matter who you are, you can be out of alignment with God and not even be aware of it. And that's one of the reasons that I think the Bible or Matthew puts, puts the story of Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So that from time to time we check out our alignment and we make sure that we are going in the same direction that God is going that I'm not going this direction while he's going that direction. And so this morning, I'd like us to check our alignment on four different fronts, okay? We're going to begin by checking our alignment, first of all, with the advance of the kingdom of God, with the advance of God's kingdom. Our text this morning uh, begins with a choice. First, Joshua sends his spies Into Jericho, they end up at the door of Rahab. It's not long after that, the king of Jericho also sends his men who also end up at the door of Rahab. And suddenly, Rahab is confronted with a choice. Who is she going to help? The men of Joshua or the men of her own king, her own people? This question not only confronts Rahab, but it really confronts all of Israel. In fact, many of you may remember sort of the question that the book of Joshua ends on, and that is, you know, choose you this day who you are going to serve. Is it going to be the gods of the Canaanites, the gods that dwell in this land, or is it going to be Yahweh, the God of Israel? Which god are you going to serve? And that question ties into, I think, many of our ponderings over the book of Joshua. And if you've ever read the book of Joshua before, you probably know what I'm talking about. For one, we are often horrified by all of the, the killing that takes place in the book of Joshua. And friends, we should be a little horrified about all of that. And much of it goes back and gets at this question. What is it that gives Israel the right to push the Canaanites out of their own land and to settle that land themselves? I mean, what gives them the right to do that? Which is really a question of ownership, isn't it? Who is it that really owns this land? And the answer that comes in the book of Joshua, the answer that, that really fills all of Scripture is that this land really belongs To God, and the Canaanites are just squatters in this land. This land began or belongs to God. And where do we get that notion from? Well, we get it from the fact that in Genesis 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth, He made them, they're His. And then he entrusted the heavens and the earth to his creations, to his human beings. And he said, these are for you to tend and to cultivate and to take care of and and to make, produce wonderful, beautiful things for my world. But what happened instead? His creations rebelled against him. And they claimed the earth for themselves and then they defended their claim with swords and spears and then they invented gods of their own to justify their claims and so and so god placed his entire creation under the judgment under the verdict of death right i mean that's what the flood is all about. Humanity was condemned in their sin. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. We were condemned in our sin. All of us are under the judgment of death. And what's happening in the book of Joshua is that God is reasserting his rightful ownership to the earth. He is reestablishing his reign over the earth. You see, our God doesn't just reign up in heaven, up in the skies somewhere where we would like to you know, demote him to. You be up there, we'll be down here. That's not the way it works. In the book of Joshua, God says, I'm going to reassert my claim over the earth. I'm going to start building my kingdom again, and I'm going to do it in this land of Canaan, and it's in this land that I'm going to place my very own people. But it's only the beginning. It's the beginning of my Reclaiming the ownership of the entire earth. Right? There's a, a beautiful scene in the book of Joshua itself that kind of explains to us um, what this is all about. God's ownership. It happens in Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua is just ready to go into go into Jericho to fight the battle, and all of a sudden he's confronted by by a man who's who's wielding a sword. And you can tell the situation is a little bit st- a little bit tense, and Joshua's probably putting you know, his own hand on the hilt of his own sword and getting ready to draw, and he says to the man, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the response that comes back is a little surprising because the man says, neither. I'm not for you and I'm not for your enemies, but I come as a commander of the Lord's army. As the commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. And the message there is, look, this is not your battle, Joshua. This is not Israel's battle. This is God's battle. This is land that belongs to him. Other gods have taken ownership and tried to push him out, and he is going to reclaim this land. It's not a jihad. It's not a holy war. It's not a human war at all. It's God reasserting his ownership over Israel. This land. That's what's going to happen. And what Israel has to do, you have to remember this as you read through the book of Joshua, they are never allowed to act on their own. They are to obey the words that Joshua receives from God and passes on to his people. They are not to do anything other than those words nothing more, nothing less. They are supposed to obey the word of Joshua to the T. And of course, that's still true today. As God continues to advance His kingdom in the world, as He continues to reclaim His world for Himself, He has given us a new Joshua, right? A second Joshua whose name happens to be Jesus. And God says it's Jesus' task to reclaim His world, to reclaim His kingdom, and His people are not to act on their own. They are only to do what Jesus commands, nothing more nothing less and of course Jesus comes and he says no longer do we advance God's kingdom with the sword now we advance God's kingdom with the cross now we advance God's kingdom by getting on our knees and washing the feet of our neighbors and the question comes can you obey this new Joshua can you fight for the kingdom in his manner through prayer and good deeds. That was the choice that Rahab was confronted with. What will she do? Who will she side with? Will she jump in, jump on board with Yahweh, the God of Israel? Or will she stick to the king of Jericho and the imposters who have taken control and claimed the earth for themselves? Well, we know the answer, right? We get the answer in verse 9 where she says, I know that the Lord, I know that Yahweh has given this land to you. What does that say? It's his land, and I know that he's given it to you. And something we have to clarify here is something Israel always needed to remember was it didn't belong to them, did it? They were tenants in the land. They were just tenants. And if they refused to obey Joshua... If they refused to obey the Lord, what would happen? They would get evicted from the land themselves. It was not for Israel, it was God's land. And He always says, You may live in my land, you may enjoy my rest and my kingdom as long as you obey my king. Rahab chose to obey the king to jump in, to jump on board with Yahweh. She makes her decision. They come to the door. What does she say? The spies? Never saw any. Actually, yeah, they were here. I think they went that way. Why don't you chase them down? That was Rahab's decision. Friends, all people have to make a choice because there are always two kingdoms that come knocking at our doors. One is a kingdom that most of us are familiar with. It's full of glitz. It's full of glamour. It shines like the chrome wheels on our cars, and it extends as far as Delta and Lufthansa can take us. It depends on people like Rahab, but it never bothers to learn their names. And it's been around for a while. In fact, it feels permanent. It feels natural it feels normal, but it's a kingdom of squatters. It's a place that devastates the earth and its people. It brings them to ruin. The other kingdom can be a little harder to spy. It's quiet, it's hidden, but it's good. It loves people like Rahab. It welcomes them in, it actually learns their names and then it treats them with dignity And it's a place of rest, a place of of security, but it'll also make you doggedly tired because it'll fill you with compassion and kindness and patience and forgiveness. And you have to choose. It's one of those messages of Advent, isn't it? It was on the lips of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, and bring your works into alignment with that repentance. Jesus repeated it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what he was saying is, the kingdom of heaven is on its way. It's coming. There's no way you can stop it. And if you don't get on board, it will sweep you away. And so repent, and get in line with the kingdom. Align yourselves with the kingdom of God. And friends, one of the best things I think that a healthy church can do for us is to keep knocking at our door and to keep throwing those choices at us. Choose over and over and over again. And we have to make that decision. Who are we going to let through the door? Who are we going to let through the door? in big ways and small ways, those choices come to us over and over again. And we are either aligning ourselves more with the kingdom of God or we are going in the other direction. And we have to understand that. Every choice that comes our way is going to take us one direction or the other. And the choice or the church throws so many different choices at us, right? I mean, we just come to worship on a Sunday morning and suddenly we see all kinds of people, Shall I say hello or should I not? Shall I ask how she's doing or not? Shall I invite him over? Shall I offer him a ride? And you get asked to do things, don't you? To serve, serve as a youth leader, serve in the nursery, to mentor a new disciple, to clean someone's apartment, to take in a child, to stay up late for rewards that this life will never give. And you get sent back into the world right after church is done. You get sent back into the world with a knowledge of God's Word and of His grace and now suddenly a new choice of how to address all sorts of issues in the world. Issues like abortion and homelessness and nationalism and profit at all costs and public education and racism and power. You're sent back into that world with a knowledge of God's love and His grace and His Word. Choice after choice comes knocking at your door. Why? Because God's kingdom is advancing. And it doesn't advance up in the sky somewhere. It advances right here on the earth. And God has a legitimate claim to this earth, to your earth, to your life. God's claim is over your life, every aspect of it. And everything you do, God claims it for himself. How well are you aligned with the advancing of God's kingdom? The second thing that Rahab gets us to check our alignment with is with the Savior of the world. With the Savior of the world. Imagine for just a moment that someone invites you to go see a new Mission Impossible film. Okay? What are your expectations? Well, I'm going to see a lot of Tom Cruise doing a lot of incredible stunts, right? That's kind of what you expect. You might expect some deception of of some sort, right? Masks and disguises and things of that nature. You might expect daring escapes and espionage and exposure of some government secrets. Well, what would happen if, if... you got into the film, and the trailers were all about Tom Cruise and all the stuff he's doing. Then you got into the film itself, and it, was, it starred some character like Elaine Bennis from, from, um, from Seinfeld, and it was really just a show about nothing. That's kind of what's going on here in Joshua 2. I mean, you start the story, and it begins with Joshua sending out his spies, right? And you're expecting to hear about... Their story. And you're expecting to read about espionage and and disguises and deception and all of those kinds of things, right? Learning the secrets of Jericho. And what you get instead is what? You get the story of, of a prostitute's domestic life in Jericho. You don't get any of the stuff you came to read. You get kind of a boring story about Rahab and who she is. You get a story about someone who is who's not intriguing but completely overlooked. You get a story about someone in the world who is often slandered and shamed and simply forgotten. It's a story about no one. It is a story about nothing. And yet she is the one who saves Israel. It's not the spies. She is the one who saves Israel. You could even make an argument that she is the one who saves the world. Or will one day. And I would say she represents her great, 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 great grandson pretty well. Because he too is is just one of the overlooked. He's one of the scorned. He's one of the slandered. He too was a nobody. From the backwoods of Nazareth a nobody and you ask you mean he's the one that God sent to save the world he's the one I'm supposed to put my hope in <laughs> this this son of questionable origin this one who never had two nickels to rub together is criminal who died a criminal's death you expect me to put my hope for my life and my future in him The story isn't about being saved by spies. And it's not about being saved by Tom Cruise. And if you think it's going to take a Tom Cruise to save you and no one less, you're going to be disappointed. Because what Rahab tells us is that Jesus is the only one who can save us. Kings, nations, paupers alike. It doesn't matter who you are. You've got to come to this nobody named Jesus. And you've got to bow before him and forget your pride and ask for help. How does your alignment work out with the Savior of the world? Is he your Savior? Could he be? Would you stoop that low? Rahab further checks our alignment with the Christian gospel itself. The Christian gospel itself. This story always prompts um, questions, right? Probably the most prominent one we talked about a few weeks ago. Well, uh, Rahab lied. Is that okay? She deceived people. Is that all right? We talked about that. We're not going to talk about it again. Um, The other question that always comes up in a similar vein is, how did these spies ever end up at the, at the house of a prostitute? Okay, what exactly were they doing? And there are some good answers, there are some not so good answers to that one. Uh, we'll actually talk about that in a moment. But one question that we rarely ask, if we ask it at all, is sort of the, the main question of the story. And that is, how can these spies make a pledge or a promise to Rahab that they will save her. When God gave specific instructions to remove all the Canaanites from the land, no exceptions, make no treaties with them, allow no one to remain, they all must be removed. How can the spies go ahead and make that decision? It's sort of the main question here. <clears throat> the story's plugging away nicely, right? Rahab is hiding the spies, and then she gets rid of the soldiers, and, and all of a sudden she throws them a monkey wrench. Now, she says, Swear to me, swear to me by the Lord, the Lord your God, that you will save me and my family. Give me a sure sign that you will spare our lives. Now that sounds like a reasonable request to to you and me, but it, like I said, it puts the spies in kind of a bind. I mean, I'm not sure that, that Joshua empowered them to make this kind of a decision, right? It's a little above their pay grade. But you see, this is Rahab's me too moment. This is her me too cry. This is Rahab saying, look, I'm throwing my hat in with your God, and you are not going to leave me behind. Wherever he goes, I am going. And so you've got to promise me that there is still room in Abraham's station wagon for one more, and that one more is me. What are the spies to do? I mean, Rahab's got the king of Jericho on speed dial. And yet, God has said, don't make any compromises. Everyone has to be removed. What are they supposed to do? Well, friends, the answer is is not brief, so we're going to shorten it by saying that the answer is just in the sign itself. The answer is in the sign itself. It's in the scarlet cord. Okay? The author specifies that this cord has to be scarlet, crimson. It says it a couple of times. It can't just be any cord. It's got to be a scarlet cord. If that scarlet cord is not in the window, then the sword of Yahweh is going to fall upon you. If it is, he will pass by. Now, does that remind you of anything? It ought to. At least it reminded all of Israel of something very specifically. And that was the blood of the Lamb that they all had to paint on their door frames while in Egypt right? And if they didn't paint that blood on the doorframe of their houses, then the Lord would not pass by their house. You see, it wasn't just Egypt that was under the penalty of death. It was Israel as well. They would have all been killed by the angel of the Lord if they had not put that blood over their doorframes. But when they did, by the grace of God, He passed by them. And it's that very same crimson blood that Rahab has to hang outside of her window. And if she does that, then the spies say, then God will pass you by. Then when we invade and we wipe out the land, we will spare you. We will spare you. And it was amazing. Rahab immediately, if you read the story, she immediately hung that cord outside the window, which means that that cord was hanging there when Israel crossed the Jordan into Canaan on the 10th day of the very first month, which was the day that the Passover lamb was to be chosen. And it means that that cord was hanging outside of her window when Israel celebrated the actual Passover on the plains of Jericho, before they invaded the land. It was there. It was there to protect Rahab and her whole family who had gathered in that house so that the sword of Yahweh would not fall on them. But they would be protected just as the families of Israel themselves had been protected. And friends, that cord is a sign of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't get to be a part of God's family by birth. All of us, you and me included, we stand under the judgment of of death. We stand under the judgment of death. And it's only by the blood of the Lamb that we are saved. All of us. What this chord says is look, everyone, anyone who puts their trust in the Lord will be saved. Anyone, it doesn't matter who you are or what you have done, if you put your trust in the Lord, you will be saved. How do you align? with the gospel. Do you stand underneath that blood? Is that the only thing you stand under? One final alignment check today and that is with Rahab's faith. Rahab's faith. Rahab is applauded in the New Testament for her faith. The book of Hebrews applauds her in chapter 11. James applauds her faith. In chapter 2 of his letter, he says Rahab's faith actually showed itself in works. She did something. She actually saved the spies, right? She offered her own life in exchange for theirs. She risked everything. She risked her life. How does your faith align with Rahab's? How does your faith align with Rahab's? Have you given your whole life to God? Have you given him everything? Well, it sort of depends on what he's done for you, isn't it? How much he's done for you. I said a moment ago that that one of the questions that always arises about this story is, why were the spies at the house of a prostitute? Why were they there? And I said, there's good answers, there's bad answers. I think the answer that we're supposed to see comes in verse 23. Comes in verse 23. The spies find their way back to Joshua, back to the camp of Israel, and they have to recount their story. They've got to tell Joshua what, what they saw. The NIV says it this way, and they told Joshua everything that had happened to them. That's how we would put it. They told Joshua everything that had happened to them while they were in the land. What the Hebrew actually says here literally is this. They told Joshua everything that had found them. They told Joshua everything that had found them. In other words, they're saying, we didn't find Rahab, Rahab found us. They didn't find a savior a Savior found them. And what about you? Did you find a Savior or did a Savior find you? Because there's a difference. We hear these kind of words all the time. I found Jesus and my life changed. But is that really what you mean? Because it's really when Jesus finds you that your life changes. Tim Keller tells a story in in many, many of his sermons. He repeats this story over and over. He says he was preaching a story. He laid out the gospel for folks. And the next day, a woman came to visit him in his office. And she said, is that really true, what you said, that the gospel says that Jesus did everything and I did nothing? And he says, yeah. Yeah. And she says, that story terrified me. And it still terrifies me. And he said, why? Why does that story terrify you? And she said, well, if if I didn't do anything and if Jesus did everything, that means that I owe him everything. That means that I can hold nothing back. It's all his. I belong to him. He said, yeah, that's exactly right. That was Rahab's faith. He did everything. He found me. And therefore, I owe him everything. That's why she could lay her life on the altar. That's why she could give everything back to God. She was God's. How does your faith compare to Rahab's? Do you give him everything? Or do you give him everything minus X? X being all the good stuff that you've done to deserve a Savior. Even if it's just not being as bad. As someone like Rahab, Jesus, I'll give you everything minus X. Please consider this as we close. Rahab was a prostitute who became faithful to one God. Far as we can tell, she married into the tribe of Judah and she gave birth to one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. She gave up trusting in herself and she put her faith in a God who said, I will save you. Israel was a covenant spouse of our God. Israel was the wife of Yahweh but time and time and time and time again she prostituted herself with other gods and with their ways and their toys and their distractions both are guilty of prostitution neither one has any hope in themselves But both of them, and really all of us prostitutes, we find life with God through the faith that He can and He has done everything. That's the only place that life comes from. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace, which is the only thing that redeems us. And thank you for working that kind of faith within us that that we would quit relying on ourselves, recognize that we have nothing to offer, and put our trust in a God who offers everything for us. Lord, give us the faith of Rahab. Give us a faithful faith, a new, a fresh faith that offers Jesus Christ everything that we have. Not just something, not almost everything, but everything. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.